Hello, welcome to the Resilient Leadership Learning from Crisis podcast. I'm Seth Schultz, the Executive Director of the Resilient Shift. Back in April, we started out on an experiment to speak to 12 senior decision makers in city government and large global organizations on a weekly basis to try and understand how they were operating in an environment of uncertainty brought on by the COVID-19 pandemic. Every week, we've been sharing their insights from these conversations with you through this podcast. Today, you're listening to our final round of weekly insights. I can't believe this is the last one already. For the last time, I have Peter Willis with me to discuss insights on leadership during a crisis from our 14th and last round of weekly interviews. Let's jump right in. Hi, Peter. Hi, Seth. Here we are. We find ourselves at the ultimate episode, my friend. <laughs> Indeed, this is going to be the ultimate episode. Yeah, I can't believe we made it. And we somehow managed, largely due to a very fabulous team, to do this every week. We didn't miss a beat over the course of the 16 weeks. And, and we wow. even did some stuff in between, didn't we? Yeah. I was, um, I was reflecting this morning, Seth, that we started this project unbelievably abruptly. It literally took us 14 days to get the whole thing conceptualized up and running before the first interview that I did in the very beginning of April. And it's come to an end in what also feels like an abrupt way when nobody was sort of <laughs> wanting it to come to an end. But the 16 weeks were up. And so boom, we just stopped. It is a little weird, isn't it? The suddenness of both starting and then seemingly suddenness of it ending. Because I, I think we've, uh, we've all really grown to uh, appreciate each other. And there's been some friendship, some kinship developed in this project. Definitely. Well, I, I definitely felt it because um, for the listeners, one of the things that we did to help kind of round this off is um, we had actually all of the participants together on one group Zoom call. And it was the first time over the course of, you know, several months that everybody had met each other. And it was, it was, I have to say it was fabulous. It was, wasn't it? I loved what you called it, Peter, the, the after party. And I was thinking to myself, well, why didn't we just call this like the party? I was like, oh, right, because the 16 weeks was the party. So this is the, this is the after. This is where the real cool kids get to go. It's the after party. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you have to know where to go for the after party. Don't you? you have to be sort of, there's no formal invitations. You just have to be in the know. But I also liked it that the, the team who were behind the project were there in the Zoom room, if you like, mingling with everybody, which was very special for me. And because, because I was acting like this sort of doorway between the two worlds because the, the team never met the participants and the participants never met each other, let alone the team. But suddenly we had everybody meeting everybody. I agree. It was very cool. And it was also, I was really impressed with the, with the team, but uh, not to say that I wasn't already very proud of our team, but in, I was impressed by their thoughts and reflections during that after party some of the contributions and insights that they had really kind of floored me. Really, really impressive. Yeah. Well, my friend, I guess uh, we have the unenviable task now of um, doing our last podcast together, which I'm also going to miss. But there's a lot to talk about, isn't there? More than ever. Kind of echoing your comments about, is it really time to end? There was a sense in which the last week's conversations were still, like all the previous ones, in the flow of what was going on in people's worlds. And for some of them, it's pretty hectic. And then there was another part to the conversations, which was unique to this last week. Yeah, indeed. But it, it kind of strikes me, the first comment that you just made, and we touched on this a, a couple of weeks ago, 
is that uh, this doesn't seem to be abating. And and I, I think you had made the comment previously that it's almost like another another fresh shock in and of itself on how we still find ourselves at the front line of this thing. And still very much to your point about the participants' comments, still very much in the middle of dealing with this crisis. Maybe maybe we just pick up there for a minute. And um, given this is our last episode, 16 weeks into this, maybe let's talk a little bit about the reflections of um, the conversations that you've had with regard to still being in the eye of the storm a little bit and, and what's happening around the world on the ground. Uh, yeah, okay. So it was actually the particularly the chief resilience officers who who needed to talk still about this sense of being on the front line and things being pretty much sort of out of control and, and hugely uncertain. Um, Mahesh in Pune, for example, surprised me because thinking about it, it was, it's so obviously a problem that uh, they have their city budget um, has to be completed by, I think it's uh, end of March next year. So they're in the middle of planning, which would normally be a reasonably sort of doable thing, but no one knows what assumptions to include about whether they're going to be in the middle of a pandemic or not. So I just thought that was an interesting reflection on how, how do you budget for a, a large city when you could be past it, you could be going into yet another deep wave of it. Yeah, and it is interesting because, you know, for people who aren't familiar with cities, you know, the, the budgeting usually works on historical precedents. Take something like in a, in a northern climate, people don't realize that cities have to proactively budget for snow removal. It snows, you got to set X amount of money aside for snow plowing and treatment. And then what happens if you have a particularly bad winter and it snows a lot and you didn't put enough money aside? I mean, you can't not plow the streets. So you got to spend more money, which means you got to take it away from other parts of the city's budget and administration. And COVID and this crisis is just ripping a giant hole through the budgets of cities all over the world. The, the other person who wanted to talk about this was Craig in um, Cape Town. And he told me that he had just been asked to continue in his role as leading the city's COVID response for another two months. And he says, and I quote, I don't resent it, but there's definitely a sense of, and as much as I find it deeply rewarding work, it is very hard to keep the energy levels up. The city has to keep running despite the indeterminacy. And that is my job. Oh, man. I really felt for him. And then Adriana in Salvador, she's very interesting because she's an example of how even though you're sitting in your apartment throughout this thing, she, I always get a feeling that she has a real sensitivity to movements of feeling across the city. And she, she talked about the uh, series of participatory workshops that she's responsible for in order to put together the city's climate action plan. And she attributes some of the sort of aggressive behavior that she's meeting in these workshops, these online workshops, to the stress of months and months of lockdown, the reduced incomes, the homeschooling, the children, and so on. But she said, um, you know, actually people were dumping. They were angry for everything. And, and I thought this was interesting. She said they weren't turning on their cameras. So that, that is a bit like being on Twitter or Facebook and dumping on somebody anonymously. But she's got a very lovely strategy that she's put in place personally to sort of coax people to put their cameras on and so on. But I thought that was an interesting indicator of how stressed people are getting. And then the last one in this sort of group of 
insights was from Alex in Oakland. She told me this story about how this lake, Lake Merritt near downtown Oakland, it's a lovely place for people to go on a warm, sunny weekend or evening and so on. But when a lot of people want to do it, there's a parking problem. Okay. And what does the city do about this? Do you sort of block off parking so that people are discouraged from going, but then people have to park miles away and they have a long walk and they feel grumpy about that. But it struck me that the, what was going on was that everybody at this stage of the pandemic is a little bit oversensitive and scratchy, either about the fact that they've been cooped up and now at last they've got some summer and they've got a little bit of time, so they want to go to the lake. But then you've got to observe social distancing, and then the parking becomes a problem. And the rules are very clear that if, if you don't pay your parking or you overstay, your car can get towed, and then it's several hundred dollars to get it removed. And that's sort of discriminatory against people who have low incomes and so on. And she was really worried that the city was going to get tangled up in more anti-police sort of sentiment simply because of parking stuff. So she and a little group got to work to, to work out a sort of a parking compromise at a very sort of simple technical level, which seems to have worked. But I thought this is the sort of thing that you, you have to do if you are like her, a kind of an activist official spotting these problems before they blossom and, and burst out and become real protest and so on. So I, th I thought that was a very telling and poignant. Yeah, interesting kind of going way back to the beginning of our, our podcast series when we were talking about, if you recall, how to pick out early signals. Great example of that. And maybe uh, an example of some pretty sophisticated learning over the last 16 weeks on how to do this. And it was also spoke to me of the this confluence of the Black Lives Matter movement and the COVID-19, that it probably wouldn't have mattered nearly so much if there hadn't been this whole hypersensitivity around policing. But you don't want heavy-handed policing on a sunny afternoon at a weekend around a lake where poor people and middle-class people are wanting to just relax and get away from the virus interesting to hear from the chief resilience officers and, and the cities on the ground in terms of what's what's happening, but also just in terms of a small reflection, well, you know, when we started this at that point in time, this had been a big, severe thing in China. China had kind of gotten it under wraps. Then there was this big epicenter explosion in, in New York, in New York City. And then Piero in Milan was very much in the epicenter of where this was. And now 16 weeks later, I noted that you didn't mention Piero, and it, that's kind of quieted down. We've got Craig in South Africa, who over the last 16 weeks, it's kind of been, we've been waiting with bated breath about when it's really going to kind of crash into South Africa. And it's begun happening, but still not really quite there. India is somewhere in between, depending on where you're at. And then Alex is California, kind of weathered the storm and then got hit again and is in a second wave. So it's just really interesting to hear where these participants are in kind of the reflections of, of their comments to you, but in the broader context of where they are now compared to 16 weeks ago. Yeah, I mean, you make me think that we couldn't have predicted how those dice would have landed 16 weeks ago. All we knew 16 weeks ago was that Piero and Milan was in the thick of it but how the others would land, and they've all ended up somewhere different. I could have predicted, but it would have been all wrong. <laughs> um, it's not at all. It's not at all how 
I thought that it was kind of ricochet around the world and then evolve. There was just absolutely nothing would have actually played out the way I thought it would have. Also, apart from the sort of what was right in front of them, which is what I've just shared with you, I asked one or two of them to talk to me a little bit about the sort of the further out future, because I was aware this was, you know, my last conversation with them, certainly for a long while. And um, I got an interesting variety of concerns and confidences in a way. And on, on the more optimistic side, Mahesh was telling me how he's convinced that because of the way the city had to confront some of its serious vulnerabilities um, in its poorer population, particularly right in the middle of the city, he's now confident that their needs will be front and center in urban planning and urban budgeting going forward. And he's, he's quite excited about that. It's like something that needed to happen, and he thinks that tipping point has been reached. And a lovely point from Barbara at Siemens, a little while back, she'd said to the lawyers, the corporate lawyers at Siemens US, have we got any IP that we own here, which if we were to give it away to the world, in other words, take our rights away from it and just make it open source, could dramatically accelerate development in countries where there's the potential for them to become really good Siemens customers long term, but right now they don't have that level of development please go and have a look. And she said, I notice in this conversation that they haven't come back to me. I'm going to go and chase them up. And I thought, well, I mean, they are intellectual property lawyers. They're not going to want to give stuff away. But I thought, what a wonderful way of thinking about your IP. As a tool or a mechanism to help people. But I think the other point is also, also correct. You know, a lot of the, a lot of the people that, that need help, if we help them, they end up being phenomenal contributions to society writ large. And I think a lot of people look at it either through the lens of competition or advantage. But I, I think if you, as soon as you can take a, one step back from that and look at it more holistically and more humanly, you see that helping others comes back and helps all of us in return. I think there's something to that. And it's really heartening to hear that from Barbara. And I've been hearing it from others as well. She's the one who introduced me to this phrase, business to society. You know, we hear of business to business and so on. And, and, and she really lives that in the way she thinks about what's possible, both in the heart of the crisis from some of our earlier podcasts, you'll remember, but this looking to the wider future. But then on the slightly more pessimistic front, and I was really glad he said this because it's something that's bothered me for a while, but Steve at the World Bank. When I asked him to sort of look out into the future, and he put a finger on cyber risk, both the sort of cyber security and natural solar flares and the sort of things that could take out our internet systems and so on. And he said the financial systems uh, of which the World Bank is a part are simply not prepared for this. The whole financial system is predicated on an incredibly sophisticated level of internet dependency and so on and satellite dependency. And he said, talk about run on the bank. No one can have a run on the bank because the bank won't know how much money it had, which I thought was a nice way of Yikes. <laughs> a rather horrible prospect. I'm going I'm to start putting more money under my mattress. Yeah, buy, a, buy a, a bigger mattress, I think, the answer. I wish I had that problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so anyway, that was um, at the other end of the spectrum, let's say. Interesting, really interesting to get these reflections from uh, from folks and where's the rubber meeting the road and, and how this is all playing out. But I guess 
One other thing I'm interested in asking you about, Peter, is our conversation represents the last round of interviews that you had with these participants after 16 weeks. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that last round of discussion with all the participants. Was it different? How did you, what did you ask them? I thought about this as the last week was coming up because I thought I, I want to sort of mark it in a way and also close it off in a way between the two of us, so me and the, the individual participants, that is. And um, what I came up with was this question, what gifts do you think the pandemic has brought to you personally, to your organization, and to the wider society? And, and just before I went on my first conversation of the week on the Monday morning, I thought, oh, wait a minute, is this too sort of Pollyanna-ish? Should I also be asking about, you know, what do you grieve for? And there were one or two conversations where I did ask that question, but actually there was so much interesting material that came out of those questions at the three different levels. So if you're interested, I'll happily share. I am really interested. I, I think probably the listeners would be too. Maybe we change gears a little bit and maybe I can just kind of ask you a series of questions, Peter, and, and maybe you can respond on behalf of all the participants with some of their reflections on on this last set of uh, interviews. Does that does that work for you? Yeah, yeah. No, that sounds good. Well, just kind of going along with what you just said and how you framed it, maybe just to start it off a little, you know, a little on the broad side, then we can get more specific as we go. What were some of the things that come top of mind after this weekly round of discussions based on maybe on the personal side? What were what, what were the personal gifts that you heard about? Well, bear in mind that all the people I was talking to were office bound normally, and therefore they were working from home. So none of these people were out there on the front line. And it'd probably be fair to say that they weren't just office bound in the you know normal day job, but heavily so. I mean, these are executives um, that spend quite a lot of time at work. Although, although of course, the, the extraordinary thing is that for some of them, they spend half their time in an airplane or an airport lounge. So for them, it was an astonishing reintroduction to their homes, their spouses, and to their children. That was a big feature for two or three of them. So time with their spouses, time with their children. Steve talked about living with his adult children. He's got two children who normally, because he was always traveling and they were off at college and or off in their work and so on. And he said, you kind of see them as fully baked. I'm seeing them work you know, online. And I'm seeing them engaged professionally. You don't have that many opportunities to do that. He felt very privileged by that. The other thing that went with the time at home was um, a chance to sort of rebalance health. And two or three of them talked about how they'd settled into rhythms where they'd actually really exercised and eaten well, slept well, and that this was, you know, late on in their careers, was a major intervention, a health intervention, they felt, which I thought was quite quite interesting. And Mahesh, for example, he loves sport, cricket, and so on, but he's not a, he admits he's not a health fanatic at all, but his wife is, um, does yoga regularly. So she gave him yoga lessons and he's starting to get really the benefit of yoga. So oh, how cool is that? That's great. And then another subtle one was Elaine talked about the an extraordinary range of different relationships with people that she had fallen in upon, partly by joining webinars and conferences online and then picking up on tracks and, and having the time to do that because she wasn't traveling so much. And um, she found that quite invaluable. And 
Alex in Oakland was saying how she felt bizarrely because she, so much of her work is online, but actually with her colleagues, she feels much closer because of the pressure they've lived under. And they, she feels she's really part of a team now. She was relatively new into the department at the end of last year. And then I thought this was an interesting one from Hani, where he's busy setting up this very, very ambitious, innovative business all while this was going on. And he said that um, he was astonished that some very senior people who he really wanted to be able to talk to about forming partnerships and relationships to, to further this new business. And he said there was a lot of room for people to hide behind the facade of being busy normally, or I need to be somewhere, sorry, I can't really give you the time. But you take all that away and there's a real genuineness that happens with people. That's the quote from him. And he said he was able to have these conversations that he would really have struggled to have normally with some of these sort of super busy top executives, which I thought was interesting. All that really resonates. It's interesting to hear and to see, I guess, how many unexpected gifts there really have been with all of this. And it is really easy to focus on all the impact and the trouble and the stress that we've been dealing with. But um, it is nice to remember that there are some, some really personally and foundationally, I would say, kind of major moments of growth and optimism. Really cool to hear some of those. Now, maybe to have maybe a similar, very similar question. We kind of, you were just kind of talking about the personal side of things. What about the professional side of things? What made me think about that was your comment about Alex and becoming friends and family in a kind of closer working environment. But how about diving into that a little bit? Well, I'll start with Craig. He said, look, I love tackling complex things, which I know having talked with him so often now, he's a, a real complexity junkie in the nicest possible and the best mode, most effective possible way. I totally resonate with that. You know, the, the nastier the problem, the more interested I am. It's like a moth to flame. It's terrible. People like you and Craig have a lot to lean into these days. So I love tackling complex things. And despite how hard it's been, I really feel I've been able to stretch my legs intellectually and as a leader. And that is incredibly fulfilling. And I really get that with him. And I think actually with all of them, I could say that about all of them. And then Mahesh made a slightly a different sort of point. He thinks that there's a new importance being attached to public health in the whole urban planning process. For sure. Yeah. And he says, normally we would think of public health only in terms of planning infrastructure, like where's the clinic going to go? But he said, I think from now, we've got a very different understanding that public health involves a whole lot of different things like transport and where people go to shop or to eat and so on. So uh, he was quite professionally, he felt that he was really growing rapidly through, through all of this. I remember I was talking at one point over the course of this, that somebody, I can't remember who, on the radio make this comment that COVID is, is the best public service announcement on public health that we've ever had. And that definitely rings true with what Mahesh is, is saying and, and feeling and a lot of what we're seeing around the world. There's this new awakening and awareness to these issues and prioritization that needs to happen in, in all of the infrastructure that underpins the healthcare system. And then there's a sort of a and I don't know how to categorize some of these insights. They're still, they were in answer to my question about the personal level of the gift from the pandemic. But Anne, for example, she really, very poignant how she, she said that she had found a new appreciation for her country of birth. She said, I come from a very safe place, a place which takes care of me and of a lot of Danes. 
we can travel and explore the world. And in the end, that's where you belong. That's where, that's what would always be there and it would always take care of you. And I never looked at it like that. And Denmark did a superb job. I remember talking about Denmark as a public service announcement too. Remember that? About uh, what a phenomenal way it is to to tackle and get something like this right in terms of you being there for your citizens. And interesting, 16 weeks later, that that's exactly Ian's takeaway. And I think this is something to watch in the months and even years ahead, is that this will have made or scarred national brands mm. in a quite unimaginable way, unimaginable prior to the crisis. I mean, you will know this in the US and supremely. Sorry, I didn't want to rub that in there, Seth. I'm just, I'm, I'm, no, I'm, I'm used to taking the <laughs> shots, Peter. <laughs> They're deserved. Another one, which, I, which really kind of rocked me back, was Tom, who I, when I asked him about the gift at a personal level, he said, you know what, for me, it was the white privilege. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, it, this gave me a, an opportunity to reflect on my white privilege and its role in my success. For several days in a row, he says, all I did was just watch the protests and think about it. And because I had more time, I could really reflect on it, what it means to me, how it's worked in my life, given me advantages that other people just don't have. And I think I've talked before about how he has really picked up this baton within WSP and is using all his subtle and, and direct organizational influence to move things onto a different level within the organization. I think with a lot of network support, because I think there's a lot of his colleagues who really want something to change for the good there. So that's, I found that incredibly humbling. He was taking this very seriously. And then um, Alex put it nicely that she said, this gave her the chance to see what happens if you really lean all the way in. And she said, it's helped to remind me what I'm capable of, why I'm here, my decision to take this role, because you remember she came out of the um, private sector where she was doing very well to, to work in a municipality. And it's helped me move more confidently in the world. She's an extraordinary young woman. And I found that was a really, it's really nice to see her recognizing that as having been her experience out of these months. And then Piero, you know, remember what he lived through in Milan literally watching the coffins being taken out of his apartment building during the, the early days of the epidemic there. And he said seeing death up close every day gave him a, a greater awareness of life and a greater understanding of the poverty that is woven into his very rich city. And he said, I feel I got the chance to live in a positive way by going back to the real concrete needs of life. Wow. I mean, what a statement. You could kind of just think about and ruminate on that one for quite a while. Wow, that's that's something else. Well, on that note, I guess another maybe this might be an awkward question to ask. And, and if there's not a lot here, we can skip it or move on to another one. But we've been talking a lot about individuals and and their responses to this, how they've learned, what they've taken away from it. But what about um, perhaps on the organizational side of things? Have these companies where these cities themselves seen any silver lining or seen anything as positive gifts of COVID? Or is, is there just nothing there? No, there is. There is. 
I think some of these we've um, heard about along the way tentatively because it's hard to see solid gifts when you're in the middle of a crisis. But uh, Steve, for example, talked about he was astonished at how fast the bank was able to move vast amounts of money when it really needed to. Alex talked about um, the city administration in Oakland having a, a much more clear goal and purpose. And I think there's part wish, you know, that that is her desire that the city should have a clearer anchoring in its purpose. But I think from some of the things she said, her senior colleagues are really kind of woken up by what's been going on there. And there are different conversations happening. Uh, several of them, as you would expect, talked about their their sort of move towards becoming a digitally more sophisticated organization got an incredible kick up the backside from COVID. I already forgot about that. How funny. The awareness of the importance of a digital currency and a digital well-being in companies and cities has been a major differentiator. I think that that's going to be echoing into the future as uh, those companies and cities that have really grasped that and were doing some work beforehand had a clear advantage. And um, Piero talked about how the way is now clear for a whole lot more environmental um, sort of greening of the inner city of Milan, where people really want more bike lanes, more pedestrian areas, more parks, more trees, because they got used to having that sort of clarity and simplicity in the city during the lockdown. And that, he thinks, is going to last. Well, and also it was kind of places of refuge. I mean, you couldn't really go anywhere for a long time. And if there wasn't a park right outside that you could get some green access to, you, you just didn't. Really profound changes in terms of public perception and desire for, for those types of public amenities. And then at a more sort of cultural level, sort of internal to organizations, uh, one or two nice points, um, I thought. One was from Peter Chamley in, in Australia. He, he was really, a bit like Tom, he was really profoundly struck by the whole Black Lives Matter episode. And he has started a, a whole lot of conversations within the Arab. He said that, that there's been a lot of discussion about things like micro-racism, the tiny little things that people might do without really realizing it inside the, the organization or, or with clients and so on. And I thought, well, that's really encouraging when the conversation gets to acknowledging that and moves away from just slogans and, and the large, you know, we really ought to this and we need to do that. And then Tom reflecting on how he's had to move his whole team online, like, like every other big organization has, but how <laughs> gradually they've started sort of hearing the dog barking in the corridor behind or, or met the child running into the, the room where the senior executive member of the team is supposed to be being businesslike. And he says that he, he's ended up having a much more authentic understanding of his colleagues by seeing them in their home environment. And they've, they've started to admit that that's where they are and stop putting on jackets and so on, just dressing in their t-shirts and so on. I mean, it's the small stuff, but you can imagine how this will have affected the team dynamic going forward. Adriana is really really impressed with the, and we, we talked about this, I think last time or the time before, the, the collaboration between different levels of government, particularly the city and the, the state government, real coming together around the idea of government doing the job of care. For her, this has been a transformative sort of revelation that what happens if you put care right at the front of your list of things that government should be 
thinking about when it meets. I mean, that was really substantial. No, it is one of the biggest barriers kind of holding things back is the kind of collaboration between the different kind of levels of government. Um, I remember when you brought that up and how struck I was by it. So, wow, there's a lot there. I didn't know if there would be a lot on the organizational side because a lot of this is they've had to deal with furloughs and crashing healthcare systems and hospitals. But um, actually, there's an incredibly rich amount of positive things that have come through this. That's uh, that was really kind of fantastic to hear. And then maybe as kind of we were rounding out our conversation to take it up even a step up. I know some of our conversations that we've had over the weeks often kind of shifted the societal or the global in nature. Um, but I was wondering if, if that came up or was reflected at that scale uh, in terms of the participants and their conversation with you. Uh, we, we focus more on the personal and the organizational because that there was, as you say, there was an incredibly, it tapped a rich vein. Um, and there was a, a lot they wanted to talk about. There were one or two interesting references to the wider picture. And Barbara, for example, said, simple as this, it was a wake-up call. And particularly for American exceptionalism, which I thought was interesting. And, and the way she put it was that American exceptionalism has been the result of prudent actions by talented people over time. And it was not an act of providence. In other words, you know, America got to be where it was through the talent and gifts and contribution of many, many people. And look how easy it is for that to be squandered. And it is. These are things that you have to build. And I actually want to, to link that to something that Craig said. He said that, and I'm going to quote him here, globally, responses to this pandemic have highlighted leadership as a quality that's not just a tick box, but actually makes a measurable difference to people's lives. I mean, that is an incredibly simple, almost trite observation. But I think this is going to go down. This last six months, you could not ask for a better lesson, a global, highly visible lesson of the difference between good leadership and poor leadership when the chips are down. And I love the word that you kind of emphasize there too, which is visible. It has been unbelievably visible. And I think part of the issue around what is or isn't good leadership is not always visible. And this has just laid all of that bare. And it is very easy to tell where the good leadership has been and what they did in order to, to deal with the challenges being, that they were being faced with. I, I think it's a really, really powerful statement from Craig. And I agree very much with, with you that I think the last six months has, has created a new playbook on what leadership looks like that's going to be, it's going to be used moving forward. So, well, let me just turn the tables on you for a moment, Seth, if I may, and ask you what, if you had to single out a gift that you feel the pandemic brought you at any of those three levels, what would you say? Ooh, well, that's interesting. I would say personally, I mean, I found it incredibly rewarding and inspiring to see this group of people, you know, to your point when we started this chat today, this morning, that we this got set up in two weeks. It was incredibly rewarding that all of these participants heeded this call, this experiment, and just showed up. They not only did that, but I what I found profoundly touching and, and inspiring was the level of candor and vulnerability and openness that they exhibited over the course of these 16 weeks. And very much to the point that you just made about what leadership is. That's what leadership looks like to me. They were honest. They were willing to, to share that they were scared, stressed, 
uncertain, but they were kind of fearlessly going to lean into this and just figure it out with everybody's best interest in mind. And that it just was completely clear that this was a winning recipe and, and that they were all doing that. And to see them learn from each other throughout this process and to have these honest conversations with you, I think personally, that was really inspiring and rewarding. And then in terms of the organization at Resilient Shift, you know, I think we all learned a lot from this. This was a big experiment for us. We didn't know, we were trying to figure out what our small contribution to society, to our grant holders, to our collaborators and partners could be. And this, um, I think this, this opportunity of reflective learning, of listening that you've really helped champion with us, Peter, was um, a, a, big, a big experiment, but one that I think has profoundly touched Resilient Shift about the importance of that type of learning and that type of listening. Well, thank you, Seth. And I, I would absolutely echo what you said about this project and the, the way everybody leaned in here, the participants and the team members in the most extraordinary way. Um, has felt like a, a gift, no question. But I want to add my sort of societal one on top of that, if I'm, if that's not cheating. No, please do. Which is that it struck me that I have spent the last 25 years trying to get the world's leaders in business, particularly, but also elsewhere, sort of yearning for them to wake up and realize that we we got a problem, Houston, and this is one of the gifts this has brought is, ah, oh, at last we're having some of these conversations because it is obvious that we can't just carry on in this sort of dreamlike way, imagining that so long as we're growing our economies by a few percent every year, everything's tickety-boo. Um, so this sort of touching the bottom and getting our feet a little closer to the ground feels to me like an enormous relief. And which isn't to say we haven't got a lot of suffering to go through, but there's something a little bit more real about some of the conversations and the appreciations now. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. As I was been thinking about our last chat together and all the insights and what we've learned, what we haven't learned, there's a quote I love by Orson Welles. And what he said was, if you want a happy ending, that depends, of course, on where you stop your story. And I know we're, we're stopping our story today here at 16 weeks. This is not the end of, of this book and there's many more chapters to be written. And I, I think it's been a total pleasure to work with you and everybody else on this and, and understand where these, these, the, the lows and the highs and where they, the happy endings have been and, and where they might be. So thanks so much for all of this, Peter. It was a phenomenal project and everybody at Resilient Ship wants to, to thank you for all your work and your leadership for helping us deliver it. It's been the most amazing pleasure, Seth. And these conversations that we have have been a real highlight for me. So I look to um, getting back in the sandpit with all of you again soon to play a new game. Indeed. And I know you, you and I had talked about this before, but we also just wanted to, um, on the air, so to speak, thank, uh, thank the phenomenal team for everything they did and all the work and helping us figure out actually how to do a podcast in all the research that they did behind the, the background, uh, all the coaching on how to make our microphones work. I mean, I, the list goes on from the, from the incredibly insightful and creative and strategic to the very mundane. But thank you so much to the team for all your work on this as well. I, I want to specifically name the two who really prop us up on the podcast. That's Siddharth and Roman 
awesome, awesome guys. Well, I'm, I look forward to that finding that next sandbox, Peter. And in the meantime, take care in South Africa. You too. Okay. Thanks a lot, Seth. Bye-bye. Bye. The COVID-19 crisis continues, but our weekly journey comes to an end. I hope you've enjoyed these 14 rounds of weekly insights, but we're not going away just yet. We're taking a month-long break, and we'll be back in September with a special series of podcasts where we reflect on the four months' worth of insights distilled from participant interviews. Follow us on your podcasting platform of choice, and you'll be the first to know when we're back. Links are in the episode notes below. This is Seth Schultz signing off on behalf of The Resilient Shift. Thank you once again, and see you soon.